This morning we continue our summer series in the book of James, Spirituality for the Real World, which of course means he's connected to what goes on in daily life. And the passage that we read today, I thought, was about favoritism and partiality. It might be, but it might be about even more. Listen to this reading from James chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please, while to the one who is poor you say, stand there or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For the one who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but if you murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Interpreting the Bible always includes two steps. From Genesis to Revelation and everything in between, it always includes two steps. Now, there are probably a hundred things to keep in mind, but it helps if you organize them into these two steps. And this is not rocket science. It's pretty obvious. The first step is understanding the ancient world, the history that was going on, the language that they spoke, the culture, the background. And the second is understanding our world, the language that we speak, and the historical moment in which we find ourselves, the culture in which we live. It is always two steps. So, for instance, if you open the book of Genesis and you read a story where God says to Abraham to kill his son Isaac, there'd be a lot of things to think about in step one. And as you move to step two, you might say, well, God doesn't really tell us to kill our kids, and we don't have child sacrifice. Two steps. If you open the book of Revelation, assuming you're not allergic to it, and you read one of those passages about how the Christians were being killed by the Roman Empire, you might say, well, that's step one, but in our culture, politicians get signed into office with their hand on a Bible. We don't have persecution, at least not here. Two steps. When you read this passage from the book of James, and you start in step one, it's pretty obvious they weren't undergoing persecution. And the reason I say that is because of the story he tells. 
there are two people coming to visit the congregation. When the church was eventually, sometime after this, under persecution, when it went underground, they didn't have visitors on Sundays. But in this case, James tells a story. Might be from real life, might be hypothetical, but suppose this guy dressed to the nines comes into the church. Pretty obvious he's got money. And this other guy, same day, dressed really in tattered rags, maybe houseless. Now, which one do you really want to visit? Which one do you want to join? And so the ushers, well-trained, they spot somebody who might be, you know, a candidate. They say to the first guy, if it's, if it's outdoor worship, they say, let me show you where the QR code is and how this works. Or they, in this service, say, here, let me, let me show you a good seat. Here's a bulletin. We have coffee. Oh, we had, we had some snacks out front, too. You should come early for that. The other guy... Yeah, bulletins are over there somewhere. You'll find it. What kind of thing is going on here in the book of James? Step one, step two, how do we make sense of it? In the first century, everything, and I mean everything, operated under this one word, patronage. The same way that nowadays you would say, well, our world is made up of a supply chain and markets. The first century was made up of patronage. A a wealthy person, well, let me explain. Not too long after this, there was a wealthy patron by the name of Tatian who donated large sums to an assembly pretty much like this. And we have a record of it. For her generous donation, they inscribed a plaque to her They gave her some jewelry, and they promised her the best seat in the house. Now, even that requires a little explanation, because they didn't have rows of pews, and so you might be saying, well, where's the best seat? Is that up front or in the back? They actually met in homes, small halls, and they had these tables that made a three-side kind of a U-shaped, and the one in the middle would have been the place of honor. This is what she was being given. In the case of James, and really throughout the Roman Empire, everybody, rich and poor, pagan and Christian, they got together for these meals in the evenings. It's not Sunday morning worship, it's evenings. And as they did, there were places that people sat, and there was food, and they gathered around. And in the case of James, he describes this wealthy patron. Now, why would these poor farmers, which is what we think mostly James's congregation was comprised of, why would they want to be kissing up to this wealthy guy? Well, that's easy. He's got means. He's got money. When it comes time for them to plant, it's a patron that you go to for seeds. It's kind of like a banker. And when the harvest time comes, he can supply you with slaves to reap the harvest. They are kissing up to him because he can help them. What does he get out of it? Oh, he gets the most important thing in the first century. He gets honor. He will be held in esteem. They'll do a plaque in his name because there were no anonymous donors in the first century. This is how you gained reputation. And not only that, if if he comes on a night to the banquet... He might get not just the place of honor, but double portions of food and more wine, the best of wine. That's that's step one in the book of James. But 
I don't know if you noticed, his clothing, the way it's described. In Greek, most scholars say it, it's, it's the sign of a man who was an equestrian, which means in the first century, not only have a horse or maybe horses, but more than that, he was rich. Equestrians in the Roman Empire were just under Roman senators. He may not be Jeff Bezos, but he's pretty darn close. Now, if you're paying close attention, you will notice that I just slipped from step one into step two. Did you hear it? I, I, I switched. Here's how it happens. A bunch of us just got back from Italy. One day we went on a wine tasting out in Tuscany in the countryside. First place we went, kind of modest, mom and pop place. Good wine, you know, small. Next place, we knew we had arrived. Got off the bus, a helicopter. You know, like you have at home. And, and, and not only a helicopter, but peacocks on parade. And not just that, but an equestrian arena. Their horses were doing the jumps over the things. That, that is moving into step two. We're in step one and we hear about an equestrian and the next thing you know, we're talking about Italy. It's so easy to move from step one to two. It's not a fair way to read step one because we have to stay true to their text, but eventually we have to make some sense of this. So let me just tell you, as we move into step two, it's harder than step one. Step one is history, it's not that hard, but step two is interpretation. In some ways, in some ways, it's like the debate over guns and the Second Amendment. The Constitution says the right to bear arms, but the context was British troops, not assault rifles and school shootings. You hear it? It's complicated, this move from step one to two. Or here's an image that my students always like. If any of you are aspiring to work at the United Nations as an interpreter, it might help to be bilingual, just saying. You know, if you just happen to love all things Japanese, does not qualify you to be an ambassador between them. You can't be a translator between these two delegations by just yelling English louder. You have to speak both languages. The same for steps one and two. You have to understand James's kind of culture and context but you also have to make this move to step two. And honestly, I thought, I thought I had it figured out. I really did. I thought, well, here's, here's the way I processed it. For roughly the first 200 years of this thing we now call Christianity, this Jesus movement, this group was mostly poor, mostly with a few patrons sprinkled in. But after the persecution that would come, and when that was over, when Constantine said, no, 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 no more persecution, and after that, when the emperor of Rome said, it's now the official religion of the Roman Empire, Christianity is the official religion, well, wealthy people started joining, and they've been joining ever since. And it's not like they were totally poor and now we're filthy rich, but Christianity has become wealthy. And so I thought, 
well, okay, then in this move from step one to step two, then we've become patrons of a sort, and we need to figure out how to care for the poor among us. But I was wrong. I read this article that suggests something radical, that James was wanting to do something bigger and bolder. He wanted to dismantle patronage, totally get rid of it. In the book of James, his vision is that instead of patron and client, that the church would be made up of siblings. That's why 20 times in the book of James, he uses the phrase, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. His vision is egalitarian. And he goes to great lengths throughout the book to show that God is our patron, who gives gifts to all generously, not extorting. James's model is friendship. In other words, we don't we don't care for the poor because of we're generous people. We don't care for the poor out of guilt. We don't care for the poor to have a tax write-off. We care for the poor because they are our siblings. They are our friends. And it made me think of Micah Ministry. Now, some of you have heard about Micah Ministry and been in Micah Ministry for so long, you're just rolling your eyes. But for others, it's like this phrase we say around here and everybody goes, I don't even know what that is. Let me explain if you don't know. Micah Ministry happens at Independence Boulevard Christian Church, just east of downtown in an area that has seen plight. Every Monday night, pre-COVID, seven, 800 people coming to be fed, get some clothing, and I'd been many times, I haven't been since COVID, but I'd been many times on Monday nights, my wife and I would go down. And it's really amazing. I, I, I have to say, though, I never thought of those people as my friends. I mean, in a way, I was a patron. Now, I was friendly. I mean, I would say, hey, welcome. We're glad you're here. And they, they, they're seated, and you, you wait on them with dignity. And I loved going around and saying, would you like some more spaghetti? But my favorite thing was pushing the dessert cart around. You want some cake? Oh, there's some good-looking cheesecake down here. Here, let me have you. It's pretty humbling to go around asking if anybody needs socks or underwear. And if it's humbling for the person asking, imagine the person being asked. But I never thought of them as friends. And that's why I was always so impressed with Daryl and Sharon Cantrell, who ran Micah Ministry for years. They knew the names of these people, and not just their names, their stories. They were friends with them. How, how many of us are friends with the poor? I think James is right. Not, not just this one, but James Forbes, the longtime pastor at Riverside Church in New York, he said, no one gets into heaven without a reference letter from the poor. There is a third step, by the way, in Bible study. It's harder than the first two, much harder. It's living it out. 